Welcome to the Catholic Cafe, where all that the Catholic Church believes and teaches is served fresh daily. So come on in and see what's on the menu today. Now, here's your host, Deacon Jeff Drzymski. Greetings and welcome to the Catholic Cafe. Uh, I'm Deacon Jeff, and I'm sitting in the luxurious corner booth of the Catholic Cafe. And, well, Robert, Robert Hutton, my co-host here, uh, we're kind of wrapping up our uh, little tour, uh, the grand tour of the uh, uh, wonderful town of Lourdes, France here. I know. it's It's been great. Now, do we have any reason to be here today for our last show? <laughs> well, Jeff? I have faith that we'll figure this out. <laughs> okay. <laughs> As you might have guessed from our little introduction here, that we're going to talk about that Catholic understanding, that Catholic relationship between faith and reason. That's right. And so we thought we'd bring a, a guest along here who could help enlighten us uh, in this. And what we, who we brought along is uh, Monsignor James Watkins, a priest for the Archdiocese of, of Washington. Uh, he's the pastor of IC Church there in uh, Washington, Immaculate Conception Church. And he's also an adjunct pr- uh, professor of philosophy at the Catholic University of America in the School of Philosophy. I always hated philosophy. but uh, I know. You've got to be a deep thinker, Deacon Jeff. And I'm not a deep thinker. I'm a deep eater and a deep sleeper, but I'm not a deep thinker. So hopefully we'll be enlightened here. Uh, Monsignor, welcome to the luxurious corner booth of the Catholic Cafe. Thanks for inviting me to the cafe. I like to start by defining terms. When we say faith and we say reason, uh, first of all, what is faith? What, 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 what does that mean? For us, faith is the deposit of revelation. And this is the substance of revelation, the stuff that we know based on what we've been given by God through the church principally the scriptures, and for us as Catholics, also the tradition of the church, which is the guiding form to the scriptures in the church down through the ages. Then let's talk about reason. Reason is a natural order of knowing um, all that's true and good and beautiful around us. And so we get that like empirically? How do we, how do we reason? We can reason things through the senses first and foremost. We look around and we see things the way they are, and we ask ourselves, the first question, not only that things are, but why are things the way they are? We look for reasons to explain the order of things. Right. And we and do that through natural science. Naturally, then, and I think many, if you look back at church history, you know, the vast majority of, of the heresies that have always uh, plagued our church have been revolving around this understanding of what, what came from God, what is God, what isn't God, uh, how do we determine where God is or who God is, and, and can, we, can we reason these things? Can we find this academically or empirically through science, or, or do we just have to believe it? And, and I know that's even up to today a constant discussion Sure. Uh, I would go right back to the basics. I mean, even for those who would say that Scripture is the only form of knowing anything about God or man or the universe, go back to Genesis. And in the beginning, he created all things, all things, this natural order, and pronounced it good. So from the very beginning, there is already in the natural order of creation the stamp by God that it is true, good, and beautiful. Monsignor, does, does our being made in the image and likeness of God, does that have something to do with our ability to reason? Is that part of what that means as well? In that same Genesis text, we're told, yes, we're made in the image and likeness of God. And if God, therefore, uh, has made us that way, and we look at ourselves and say, now, what is man? Okay, essentially intellect and will in a body. Yes, then God is also, in a sense, supremely intellect and supremely goodwill. So we take our bearings from what we do know and what we know 
leads us back to the very origins of where we came from. Well, so one of the, some of the things that we're experiencing today that might be uh, maybe an enemy to this truth, what are the things that are, people are believing that are wrong about faith and reason? For instance, there's an idea that maybe that all matter is bad or evil, contains with it evil, and is a bad thing, but only uh, the spirit and, and faith or thought or, or these, these things that are revealed internally, et cetera, would be good. Um, so what are some, some, I guess, I don't want to say heresies, but some things that are leading us astray? Well, history is repeating itself over and over and over again. And one of the greatest problems that I think contemporary men and women, even Christians, experience is along the lines of heresy that you speak of is dualism. Basically, that people see themselves as souls trapped within bodies. And that, therefore, the body is somehow the cage, the prison, uh, somehow drawing the body or the, the soul down. This comes from Plato, but it's also very, very prevalent in a lot of contemporary Christian thinking that likes to quote St. Paul, for example, out of context, that Sark's flesh is somehow all evil. Well, if that's the case, then we've got a contradiction going on between the natural order that God created when he gave man and woman bodies and sexuality and everything else, and now you've got this, uh, this kind of denigration and suspicion about the body and all things material as somehow evil. So how do you figure that out? Now, you can use scripture any way you want. You can quote scripture against scripture because there are apparently, if you just simply read it, mm-hmm. word for word, contradictions. What the church does as the authoritative body that uh, can interpret that for us is, is to say, wait a minute. No, through reason in the context of our faith, God has given us the blessing of reason within faith to determine what is true and what is false about dualism. For example, the body is not evil. God doesn't create junk. God doesn't create evil things. He can't. It's contrary to his nature. Well, one of the beautiful and wonderful gifts that we had from our previous Holy Father, uh, Pope Blessed John Paul II, those talks he did in his Wednesday audiences, uh, the theology of the body, just really help us understand that there is not that dualism. That's correct. That, that, the, that, that our bodies are gifts from God and, and, and they're united uh, in a very particular way. Uh, in that worship of God, the body and the soul are united in, in, a, uh, in a very beautiful way. And help expand a little more on that thought. Well, not only there, but when you start looking at all the wonderful doctrines and, and dogma that uh, the church has professed for 2,000 years, and I'm thinking now in the Eastern season, particularly of the resurrection of the body, that somehow the body is not uh, an accident to our nature. It is integral to our nature. And so when people say, oh, uh, at death I'm truly free, well, no, man is not created to be an angel that is separate from body. He's created to be integrated well, with that's body. A, that's an excellent point. And you think about that we're, we realize from scriptures that there's going to be a bodily resurrection, right? And eventually at the, the end of all, all chronos, end of all time, that we'll be reunited with our bodies if we've, if we've passed previously, right? Our souls will be reunited with glorified bodies. Which and makes so, sense to our nature because well, God which, created it that way to which, be glorified in that nature, not right. opposed to that nature or contrary to that nature. And tells us that, we, that our bodies are not merely uh, uh, transportation mechanisms. Accidental. They're not right. accidental to right. our substance. Those are using philosophical categories. Yeah, well, we don't we don't talk in philosophical <laughs> terms in the cafe, right? I see. Okay. <laughs> you know, Monsignor, I remember when I was in college, I had a good friend that was a fundamentalist, and he was always saying, uh, you know, we believe it because it's in God's word, and there was almost a distrust of of reason. And can we know things about God? I mean, their his belief, and I'm not at all disrespecting his belief, but it was really, you can't know anything about God from reason itself. I mean, That's unfortunate that he would say that, but I know there's a long tradition that is very suspicious of reason when it comes to uh, our understanding of God. 
But let's face it, I mean, there have been wonderful, wonderful civilizations down through the Middle Ages, even many ages prior to Christianity, prior to Judaism, that spoke about the existence of God independent of that faith. I mean, through the natural science of metaphysics. I'm speaking of Aristotle in particular, 150 years before Christ, uh, who really brought to Greek civilization and to the whole Western civilization a natural form to the science of metaphysics, uh, an understanding of God that uh, does not require faith in order to know the real existence of God as one, as supreme, as divine, as eternal. All the categories that we take for granted in faith are already known naturally by the science of metaphysics. And, of course, it, it's, uh, it is very much a science that's in uh, dialogue with physics today when you speak about astrophysics and cause-effect relationships in the universe. So everything that we say about God by reason in the science of metaphysics is not opposed to the faith. In fact, fundamentally, it's the same. So reason would lead us to know that there is a God. If we never saw a Bible, we could learn just through our faculty of reason certain qualities about that there is a God and he's eternal and things of that nature. That is correct. That is correct. And that was done 150 years before the revelation of Scripture. And so that shows us that through the natural sciences, we can know the real existence of an eternal one. We call that God an unmoved mover, an uncaused cause, a necessary principal act of being. Those things are not opposed to the faith. In fact, they underscore the faith. So then does our faith fill in the details that we can't know through natural reason? That is correct. There are many things that we cannot know about God naturally through the science, uh, the sciences that uh, faith tells us. For example, that God is personal. That would never occur to a natural science that God is a personal being. That takes revelation. That takes a personal communication. But such... A personal God would not necessarily be even opposed to reason. In fact, all that we say about God in the Judeo-Christian dispensation is not opposed to reason at all. In fact, it may not be explicitly taught by reason, but there's nothing in reason that really opposes the faith. And in fact, I think we can go sometimes too far and uh, some of us can expect too much out of reason, Mm. right? And we start to think that we must reason our way to God and that there is no faith involved. And then if we were strictly faith-oriented and we don't want a reason, we'd see that separation. Uh, both of those are, uh, on the extreme, are problematic. Sure. And, and, of course, in the history of our church, we speak about rationalism on the one hand, which is an extreme form that I can somehow uh, determine my salvation through private knowledge or my own knowledge, uh, come to my own conclusions. And then fetism on the other extreme, which says, no, the whole natural order is to be condemned, denigrated, and done away with because it's of man. But again, as I said, we're led back to that, that incredible problem that Genesis 1 proposes, that somehow how can God create a natural order which is opposed to the truth of things? Because there is imbued in the natural order the truth that man naturally sees. Well, that's why it's wonderful we have this gift of the church to help us sort through these things, is it not? Because, uh, again, if we if we were left up to ourselves, you'd have two camps, right? You'd have those people that believed in, in uh, faith alone and nothing about uh, anything else will matter. And then you might have the other camp that's going uh, to reason its way to salvation, which is uh, both uh, problematic in, in, uh, uh, in truth. So, uh, you know what? We have so much more to talk about here. Uh, about faith and reason. We're going to come back in just a minute. Before we do that, I want to remind everyone at home that we have um, a tremendous website that you can visit, www.thecatholiccafe.com. Uh, also, I would love to have you email me and let me know what's going on in your life. Uh, do that at deaconjeff at thecatholiccafe.com. And so with that, uh, have great faith 
and uh, Robert is reasoning that you will probably come back right after this. I'm Bess Drzymski, and this is another great moment in church history. Just imagine what it would have been like to sit at the feet of one of the twelve and hear the gospel proclaimed firsthand from someone who saw, touched, walked, and talked with the Lord Jesus himself. This is just what St. Polycarp did as a student of St. John, the last of the beloved apostles to die. St. Polycarp was Bishop of Smyrna and a very holy man. As a member of the second generation of church leaders, he faced many new challenges, challenges even the original 12 apostles did not face. There were many early heresies, challenges to the truth of Christ and the authority of the church. But above all, St. Polycarp was a man of God, and he faced these challenges head-on his entire life. He was a beacon of truth for the early church, the heretic Marcion, who taught error about the nature, existence, and relationship of good and evil, matter and spirit, challenged St. Polycarp, demanding he recognize his heretical sect. Recognize us, Polycarp, he demanded. St. Polycarp responded, I recognize you, yes, I recognize the son of Satan. St. Polycarp was to give his life in service to the church, just as his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. A very early document, The Martyrdom of Polycarp, tells the heroic story of his death. When in his 80s, St. Polycarp was arrested, he was offered the opportunity to save his own life if he would simply swear his allegiance to Caesar. To this request, St. Polycarp answered, If you imagine that I will swear by Caesar, you do not know who I am. Let me tell you plainly, I am a Christian. It was ordered that St. Polycarp be burned at the stake. As the fire was lit, witnesses heard a long and beautiful prayer uttered from the mouth of the saint. In part, they heard, Lord God Almighty, I bless you for having made me worthy of this day and this hour. I bless you because I may have a part, along with the martyrs, in the chalice of your Christ. As St. Polycarp said amen, his captor stoked the fire. But it is reported that the fire did not burn him. It miraculously formed an arch around him, causing him to resemble what the martyrdom document says was gold and silver glowing in a furnace they finally had to stab him to death. St. Polycarp's feast day is February 23rd. I'm Bess Drzymski, and this is another great moment in church history. Welcome back to the Catholic Cafe. Here's Deacon Jeff. And we're back in the luxurious corner booth of the Catholic Cafe, the French Catholic Cafe here in Lourdes, France. And uh, Robert, we're having a great discussion about faith and reason, aren't we? We are, and actually that raises the next question. Um, Monsignor, a lot of my friends that question their faith, and I've always heard you can prove God, that there are these traditional proofs of God. What are some of the ways that uh, we can show through reason that there is a God that exists? Could you talk about one or more of those? I think the contemporary debate about uh, religion and science uh, is something that you know poses this question 
in light of the Big Bang theories, in light of all that we're doing when we study the origins of light and energy in the universe. And there's always the question, well, for every effect, there's a cause. And for that cause, there may well be another cause. And what caused that cause? And you go on and on and on and on and on. And what's interesting is that when you study energy and light, as astrophysics does in the contemporary sciences, we're led to understand that, you know, all energy itself is composed of potency and act. I mean, those are the principles that science uses itself, that nothing can come from itself. It has to be rendered actually so by something other than itself. So, like, I came from my parents. I didn't sure. cause myself, and my parents were caused by their parents. And so on, who and, so came, on and so on. And there has to be, at some point... A first cause, right? Uh, well, there yeah. has to be, because uh, a lot of people, though, are, are led to believe, oh, this could have been going on and on and on forever. What's called an infinite regress. Well, that's illogical. It's unscientific that that we could establish cause-effect relationship or moved-mover relationships forever in the sense that there never was a first mover. Well, if you don't have a first that is itself unmoved, if you don't have a first that is itself uncaused, then you don't have any real cause-effect or move-mover relationship. And so all physical things require by their very nature that they either be moved into action by something other than themselves, because potency can't move itself. It has to be rendered actually by something other than itself or caused into existence by something other than itself, because if it caused itself, it would have to exist prior to itself, which is impossible. So all physical things require ultimately something metaphysical to establish that mover-move relationship or cause-effect relationship. And that's not going to be something physical. It's not going to be something subject to time and space in the same way that all physics is. It has to be something which we say is metaphysical. And this is very interesting because... In the contemporary debate now, physics is beginning once again to engage the age-old science, and I speak of this as a science, of metaphysics, which again is not opposed to God, not opposed to the, the origins of truth, but actually underscores and explains something like Big Bang, which is a physical phenomenon. Right. Now, Monsignor, I saw on a TV show once, they used to think that the Big Bang, that the universe kept on blowing out, and then it would contract and be another Big Bang, and there was this infinite regress, where some scientists are saying now know that the, the, they can tell that there's not enough gravitational pull to re-pull the universe together, so there couldn't have been an infinite number of Big Bangs, so that what must have happened is at some point the universe blew into existence. Is that is that your understanding of... Uh, is that prove what you're saying? And, and and it, yeah, any way you want to look at Big Bang, whether it's going to be uh, the ebb and flow or the expansion contraction from one being to another, you still have to explain all physical phenomena, namely Big Bang, even the point of origins of something physical, a source of energy, a source of some kind of um, material, matter, energy, as coming from, that is, effected or caused into being from something other than itself. Because you have to explain why it exists and where does it come from? What explains that? Again, the principles of potency and act, which Aristotle used and all science uses to explain physical phenomena, are present even with Big Bang. You can't explain an eternal potency. Now, I know we hear the, we hear the term, uh, you know, infinite or inf- infinity. Is, is that really just science's way of saying we don't know where it came from or to the point where it's not, it's not, it's not explainable? I mean, because you say that's not a logical scientific understanding, but it's like we see that little infinity, that little sideways sure. eight all the time. And a lot of times people, when I'm talking to them, they'll explain that, oh, well, no, no, see, that's, that just means that this was an infinite uh, uh, regression, as you called it. And it's like, well, think about it. As humans, can we even consider what in- infinity means? There's no problem, on the one hand, of explaining that there could have been an infinite number of causes to explain 
you know, a number of finite effects. The issue is eternity, that all of this infinite process could well have been taking place from all eternity. That's, that's, let's not confuse the two. Okay, a lot of people think, okay, it, this went on infinitely. No problem with that if you understand there has to be a cause for infinity other than itself. It just can't be there. It has and, to be explained by something other than itself. But we're also, in, in, we're also sort of limited in our, our understanding. or We're only capable of what the human mind is capable of doing, I guess. Is, is everything has to be framed in the context of the human mind and the human understanding of sure. things. Right? And so when you think, say things like infinite and eternal, we really are just sort of like kind of tossing a guess out there, especially if you're separating it from the concept of faith. Sure. Right? If you're just looking just at pure reason. That's correct. There would be no way by reason alone, by science alone, to say that in the beginning, for example, all there was was God and nothing else. No, no natural science would ever conclude that. But it's not impossible to hypothesize that in the beginning all there was was God when you consider the possibility that possibility doesn't have to exist. The universe is possible. All possible universes by their very nature are possible, which means they're not necessary. But what explains possibility as real, that is coming into existence, has to be something other than possibility, namely real and absolute necessity. So again, even with reason, we can show, even hypothetically, that in the beginning all there was was God and nothing else as a hypothetical possibility which is not opposed to the faith. You know, Mon- in fact, it's in, imbued with reason. Monsignor, one thing for my, and my brain has a hard time with these very infinite kind of concepts, but one thing that's always kind of made sense to me is this argument, maybe it's called the design argument, that you know, things tend to go from order to disorder. So, but when you, you know, if naturally, if you look at my room after two weeks after my <laughs> wife's cleaned it up, it looks just, I mean, just awful. But if, uh, my wife, with my help, by the way, I had to put that in there. But, um, but if you look at the human being and the intricate design, like the design of the eye and all that, how could that just randomly such complex structures as a human eye or a heart? We assume there's a design to oh, everything. Oh, and it goes on and on. I mean, I've seen arguments about the, the, the earth being the exact distance from the sun that it needed to, to, so for life to be uh, possible. I mean, somebody has told me for, for all those things to come to, to – that the normal order is to go from organized to chaos. Mm. And for all of these things to happen to come – into existence in such a way to create that for a human being would be about the same odds as getting a, a monkey to type out the dictionary on a, on a typewriter just by chance five times or 500 times in a row that, that, that it's almost in, it would take a great amount of faith to believe that, uh, that this universe, an organized universe with such complex structure. I mean, what does it mean that, in faith uh, that, that, that the faith is wonderful to underscore the beauty and complexity of a personal loving designer. But again, I mean, even Aristotle, uh, again, a non-Christian, someone who didn't accept the faith, didn't even know the faith or have the benefit of the gospel, concludes through the natural argument of design that here are all these natural bodies in this universe lacking their own intellect and free will. I mean, water doesn't choose to be water. It will always act as water according to its nature, whether of gaseous form or whether in a liquid form, it's going to be water. And all these substances act naturally either always or for the most part to achieve their natural end for which they exist. Are they going to do that by chance? As you indicated earlier, very difficult to explain that all of these bodies out there, all physical bodies, natural bodies lacking their own intellect and will, because man is the only one that has it other than angels, to achieve their end, not by chance, 
but by design. So how do you explain that again? Again, back to cause-effect relationships. These effects cannot be explained adequately without a cause which is itself all intelligent to explain how their intelligence, the multitude of intelligences out there, achieve these ends. It's magnificent that the argument for natural design still concludes a God who is a designer of the, of the creator of the universe. Not opposed to the faith, one in being with the faith. I guess what I want to do is now sort of bring it home a little bit and, and think about the average Catholic sitting in the pew. And they are constantly inundated with uh, wonderful programming on National Geographic television or some other, uh, the Learning Channel or whatever. And then some programming that may be uh, challenging their faith. For instance, all of the Bible mysteries explained, you know, there was a, it was a, a freak weather thing that allowed this to happen. Or we, we've now so, sort of diffused the faith element and there's some dangers out there. Sure. What do you talk to an average uh, person listening, like how to ingest all of this and see this balance or the necessary balance? Well, I think you have to always remember that all natural occurrences or all the occurrences that we see down through the many ages, whether they're plagues, famines, fires, floods, all the stuff that you're referring to, which is what we write about um, uh, and reflect on either from science, the order of reason, or through the scriptures, what happened with Noah and the ark and all these things. Um, it's complex to read the Bible as a history book. It is not, nor was it ever designed to be a history book. Now, I know there are fundamentalists out there that would take exception to this. But, you know, if you start reading the Bible as a history book, you get into lots of contradictions. Now, if every word in Scripture is revealed by God, then you're going to be led to the conclusion that God is contradicting himself. And I don't think any fundamentalist wants to say that. And we don't say that. So you have to look at Scripture not as history as such, but as religious history. And so that's a very different lens by which, which contains real history, like, sure. like the resurrection, for example, sure. but maybe contains some allegory, poet, things that were not intended by the author to be written as, um, as a, a as narration. Strict, as a strict uh, record of fact. Uh, a lot of these things in the Old Testament and New are written uh, because they're in the context of religious faith. The Old Testament being a foretaste and promise and pledge and promise of the, of the New Testament. So you have archetypes in the Old Testament that refer to the New. And you have to read it that way. It's not meant to be as such. And again, the, the balance, that balance of faith and reason, or faith working in reason, or reason working towards faith, and the two of them together, and we meet in this sort of glorious explosion in the middle. Absolutely. These two fonts of knowledge, through reason and through faith, are not opposed. In fact, they are ordered by the same God of reason and the God of faith. In fact, the God of faith and reason is the same one God. Well, Monsignor James Watkins, we appreciate so much you taking the time uh, to be here with us, and we appreciate this. And if you wouldn't mind, uh, maybe offer a prayer as we, as we leave the program today. Let us pray in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 Almighty God and loving Father, you have ordered the universe and all creation from all eternity according to your design. Allow us, your stewards made in your image and likeness to reflect that intelligence and that love through our thoughts, words, and actions so that in all things we may reflect your truth, your beauty, and your goodness in all things that you have given us through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to The Catholic Cafe. If you'd like to contact Deacon Jeff, send an email to deaconjeff at thecatholiccafe.com The Catholic Cafe is brought to you by the Order of Malta Federal Association and is broadcast with ecclesial permission from J. Terry Stive, Bishop of Memphis in Tennessee.
Join us again at the Catholic Cafe. There's always room for one more at our table.